Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is Dr. Zubin Demanya. He is, among other things, a physician. Turns out it's easier to get a doctor to come on this podcast than it is to get an appointment with one in real life. That's a lot of what we're going to be talking about in this conversation, and I'll tell you more about Zubin in a second. But first, as always, just a quick announcement. My heterodox community for women, the Unspeakeasy, is growing quickly. We're going to be launching several things very soon. But for right now, I want to tell you about a retreat we have coming up in February. It's in Los Angeles. It's February 18th and 19th over a weekend. It's going to be amazing. If you are interested, go to theunspeakeasy.com and read all about what we're doing and request information. Okay. My guest, Zubin Demanya, is a Stanford-trained physician and founder of Turntable Health, an innovative healthcare clinic and early model of something called Health 3.0. He spent many years working with patients in hospitals, during which time he launched what he calls a shadow career on YouTube under the pseudonym ZDogMD. He soon became a bit of a star, and now he's the host of the hugely successful podcast, The Z-Dog MD Show. Zubin covers a lot of subjects, but I think he's especially good at describing what's going on with the medical field in the largest sense. I brought him on because I wanted to talk about why it's so difficult to find a doctor and pay for medical care, and why, in turn, doctors have never had a harder time being able to provide that care and get paid for it. I should say that he did found a company that seeks to address some of these issues, so in moments he is speaking through that framing. But I see him as a very honest broker and reliable source on multiple levels. And I think this is a genuinely useful and illuminating conversation. So here it is. Zubin Dumanya, welcome to The Unspeakable. How are you, Megan? Good to uh, be here. Yeah, I am. I'm doing pretty well today. So much I want to talk with you about. You are a UCSF Stanford-trained internist. You were a hospitalist for many years, meaning you worked in the hospital treating the sickest patients. In 2010, I think you started producing videos and doing live performances about medicine under the alter ego, the alter ego hip hop name Z Dog MD. Is that right? As one does. <laughs> Sadly, that is that is that is accurate. Okay, you got you doctors are all the same. You just do whatever's in front of you, right? You know, whatever's <laughs> the next step. Up the ladder, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, if only if it were if only we were that spontaneous. No, 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 no. Most most people most doctors have planned for years and years their trajectory, and living in the present moment is not part of that equation. Yes, yes. So that's what a lot of what we're here to talk about. So, well, by way of kicking off this conversation, which could go in any number of directions, I want to run by you a situation I had recently and get your get your thoughts. So. I'm a pretty healthy person. Uh, I don't have a general practitioner. I'm new. I, I moved back to California in the last year. So I don't actually have an internist out here, primary care provider out here. And um, I had COVID. I was, I was pretty sick and I recovered, but I was having a slow recovery. So I was in a situation where I wanted to see a doctor. I felt like I needed to see somebody. And I called nine different offices, I believe. 
and not a single one was taking new patients. Not even just didn't have appointments, was not taking new patients. What is going on? Why is it so hard to find a doctor? So, you know, what I think we're seeing is we've, we're reaping what has been sowed for decades in this country, which is you are not paid to think, you're not paid to develop relationships, you're not paid to prevent disease, you're not paid in the way that we would imagine that sort of old school Marcus Welby primary care physician that knows you and has a relationship with you and your family. That's not reimbursed in this country by the healthcare industrial complex that pays for this stuff, insurance, government, et cetera. So primary care in general, the sort of quarterback of the team of healthcare, what it, what it should be and what we tried to do when we built our clinic in Las Vegas, this idea that you could actually prevent disease by forming relationships with patients instead of turning that into a transaction. It's, it's just simply, not only is it not reimbursed well, the general culture of medicine looks down upon those physicians as less than in some way because they didn't become specialists, which are paid a fortune uh, on a fee-for-service basis, and even they are suffering now, but it, to kind of treat stuff that's already happened that wasn't prevented. So there's a shortage in general of primary care doctors per capita in the United States. Like in Europe and other places, actually, the, the ratio of doctors to patients is more favorable for patients, actually. But in the United States, it's not. And that's a function of decades of also protective behavior by the AMA and other big physician advocacy organizations, lobbying groups, et cetera, to keep physician salaries high. But, the, but what's happened now is we have this shortage. So after COVID, it got worse because a lot of physicians either changed their practice to do concierge medicine where you're paid a fee per month or per year to take care of patients outside of insurance, or they left the game. Or what happened is many patients didn't see a doctor over the two years because of all the, you know, paranoia that was instilled by everything. And so now they're coming in mass and these practices are filling up. Okay. But why, and I'm just going to interview you like a total lay person here. Usually I try to fancy myself like, you know, extremely well-versed in whatever my guest is into, but I'm just going to really <laughs> take the opportunity <laughs> of having you here to ask questions that I have. And I think probably a lot of people do. So what actually happened when and why? Because it seems like, was it 20 years ago that things started to change? Like what changed and why and when, I guess, is what I want to know. So it really is, there's no one single event. You could point to a few things and say, oh, you know, when Medicare changed its reimbursement or whatever, it's not really that. I think it's just an, a longstanding systemic effect. They're second and third order effects of a systemic policy that rewards, it's backwards, like compared to the rest of the world. We reward specialty care in a fee-for-service way where prices are set by a fiat at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid by a committee of unelected people that are often representing specialty services and things like that. So to replace a hip, you get paid a shit. Can I curse on this show or no? Yes. Yeah, nuanced AF is our is our theme. Is oh, our I love slogan. it. I yes. love it. Um, yeah. And that stands for as fabulous, right? Doesn't it? So <laughs> yeah, the, you, you get paid a shit ton to replace a hip, but you do not get, get paid shit to actually prevent a person from injuring their hip in the first place over years by having them help help them lose weight or never get obese in the first place or exercise diet those kind of things so over years this has led to a general atrophy of primary care and the fact that you know there are lower paid specialties but it's not even just about pay it's about 
a lot of cultural factors in medicine. And then the fact that they are currently treated like absolute garbage by the healthcare industrial complex, meaning they are spending more time uh, documenting in something that in every other in every other field, the informatics revolution has transformed the field for the better. In medicine, it's made it a disaster for both patients and healthcare providers because now we're turned into data entry clerks. In the old days, a primary care physician could scribble a couple of like illegible notes in their chart really for their own benefit and for the benefit of other specialists. Now you're filling in these sort of copy-paste boilerplate ransom notes that are really for the benefit of administrators, government, insurance companies, and lawyers. So you've, you've turned these high-functioning, intuitive, caring, idealistic people, the primary care docs, into data entry clerks that are staring at a computer instead of being with you. And so it's, it's this long-standing kind of disaster. It's what I call health 2.0. That's the mechanized assembly line model we're in now. 1.0 was that old, like, Marcus Welby, MASH, kind of old-school 20th century model where doctor and a patient in a sacred relationship, but still problematic because there wasn't a lot of science and evidence-based medicine and population health. Yeah. So, okay. And like for somebody like me, I would be inclined to think this happened because there were so many advancements in medicine that things became more expensive, that there were more, there were sort of more tools to work with. Is that not quite the, am I onto something there? Like, is this just sort of a, like an abundance of, you know, a sort of unintended consequences of actual progress? So this is a great point. And actually, I look at it this way. We've done all these things, right? So there's all this technological progress, but our life expectancy goes down. So how much of that is actually helping patients and how much of that is just generating profits for various sectors of healthcare? And in all other, in most other sectors of the economy, when you get technology, actually efficiency, productivity, outcomes tend to get better. In healthcare, it hasn't. So why is that? Well, because one of the second order effects of this has been the, so this is all great. Like you can be more efficient with an electronic health record. You can have better throughput in hospitals. You can apply AI to certain problems. You can do all this kind of stuff and procedures and all that. But what you're losing is you're losing the central human relationship that's at the heart of healthcare. And that's because human health is actually a biopsychosocial phenomenon. My friend Rachel Zoffness talks about this. She's a psychologist. We're biological, we're psychological, and we're social creatures, and it's all in a continuum. So in medicine, what we've done is we focused on all the biological, that sort of external stuff, and technology can help with that. But we've then sucked away the social and the uh, psychological aspects of it. And that's what suffered. So now you don't have a relationship with a doctor. You have a relationship with an insurance company or a uh, health system or a health plan or a telehealth company. And that actually matters. It really does because we're biopsychosocial creatures. So a lot of what we see in primary care is actually psychological, social stuff that manifests physically. And we haven't been able to, to help with that. And so you see actually life expectancies go down, satisfaction goes down, and your ability to get a primary care doc is nil now. Your father is a doctor. He's an immigrant. You always wanted to be a doctor. What was the, your, what was the sort of medical legacy <laughs> in your family? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, both my parents are docs and they're both immigrants and my mom's a psychiatrist. My dad's an internist and they're old school private practice, Central Valley of California, rural Clovis, California. And 
So actually from a young age, I would see how hard, and that was health 1.0. That was the old days of medicine. So that's what I saw. That's what I was raised in. And I fell in love with certain aspects of it, the relationship and the cool like autonomy that the doctor had and the kind of superhuman aspects of it that it felt like doctors were. Um, but even they would point to point to what was coming and say, yeah, but you know, the way I practice, that's not happening. And and I was actually not into it. I wanted to do anything but. So I, you know, I tried <laughs> being a musician. I did a music minor at Berkeley. I hedged my bets. I, I was like, yeah, but I just don't have the ambition or the talent for that. So I kind of drifted as I realized that, oh, I really like people. I like science. This seems to be a fit. And then I thought, you know, let's just go all in. And and so it wasn't a natural sort of gravitation. It was something that just kind of evolved. Um, but I really didn't want to do it because I saw how hard they worked and it just looked unpleasant on so many levels, being on call in the middle of the night. And that's one of the things that's changed is that sort of structure of one person holding all the ships up um, has changed. Now it's a team where everybody punches in and punches out, which has its own downside, as you can imagine, because nobody seems to take ownership of that relationship with the patient anymore. Yeah. So, and I think this is key too. So you, when you were growing up and watching your parents, you're talking about that as being medicine 1.0, but you're not very old. So we're talking about what the eighties, the nineties. Yeah. The eighties and the nineties, the eighties was the tail end of 1.0. The nineties was the beginning of 2.0 with the advent of HMOs where bureaucrats and administrators decided, you know what, we could we look at 1.0 and go, okay, it's kind of unregulated. The doctors hold all the cards. Supply creates demand. In other words, if a doctor says you need something, you just say, okay, because there's no internet for you to become knowledgeable about your own health, really. So doctors held all the informational cards. So they said, you know what? In every other industry, there's electronic systems, there's informatics, there's measurements and outcomes and kind of these Toyota lean assembly line processes and things like that. And they said, what if we adopt that and we manage the care? Well, that way we could lower costs and improve outcomes. That was the good intent behind it, right? And so it started really in full force in the 90s. And we remember the HMO days of zero sum. Well, if we did deny care to patients, then we save money and they end up going somewhere else. And that's where the cost is incurred. So it, it just wasn't a model that was going to work, but it started to bureaucratize. And you can actually look at statistics and go, that's when the number of healthcare administrators, the ratio of administrators to actual practicing frontline clinicians started to, to change dramatically to where now it's like a 10 to one ratio or something ridiculous. Oh, okay. All right. So the managed care phenomenon is really what was the game changer. And that started in the 90s. Yeah, and it was beginning in the 80s, but yeah, the 90s and pay payment models started to change in the 80s. So things started to shift. Okay. So for people going to medical school when you were in medical school, what did they think their futures were going to look like? So I, I graduated medical school in 1999. So in our day, we knew that these, like HMOs were the running joke. Like you just want to avoid the HMOs because it was had such a bad stigma in those days, but we didn't know what was coming, which was big employed health systems where everybody's an employee and you're dealing with corporate overlords and all that. We still thought we could do medicine the way I, I saw my parents do it with autonomy, focusing on the patient and the electronic health record hadn't really gone live on force yet. It was just kind of starting and we, and we were encouraged. We're like, oh, cause we're all computer savvy kids and thought, you know, at least we can finally use the power of computers that we've seen everywhere else. Well, we were in for a sad surprise because I was there 
at Stanford on call as an attending physician, uh, as a hospital medicine physician in what it was it 2003 or something when we went live with our electronic health record at Stanford and everything changed overnight. Like suddenly you're a data entry clerk, suddenly you're bringing work home in a way that you never could before because you could write orders, you could look at labs, you could do all these things that was, it was quite onerous before. So there's a, a plus there that you have access to data, but the minus is what do you do with all that data? And you know, pajama time with your kids suffers, you, you know, and this is the sort of beginning of major burnout for a lot of clinicians was the electronic health record. Say more about that. So, because on one hand, you're supposed to be saving time, but like literally give me an example, like you should be playing with your kids, but you're sitting there using the information that you now have to do what? Right. So let's say I see, I have a 12 hour shift during the day and I'm seeing patients all day. Now, if I want to actually spend time with patients, if I want to talk to a specialist in person, if I want to actually do the relational medicine that I know actually helps patients, I can do that. But then I have to do all the charting. I have to do all the documentation, which means I have to get in the computer and there's and the computers are sh abject shit. Like it's been two decades of, if you used this system, Megan, you would be like, what the living fuck is going on with all the money we throw into healthcare? Like a, an Apple device runs intuitively and easily. And this is, it, it runs like on a, on a DOS prompt from the right. 80s. <laughs> <laughs> and and like doctors who are pretty intelligent people generally are struggling to use it. It's super unfriendly. There's too much information and it's designed by bureaucrat, bureaucrats for bureaucrats. Epic Systems, which is the biggest EHR in the big hospitals, is run by a computer programmer. And I've had conversations with them. They do not care about physicians. They care about their customer, which is health systems. And so it is demoralizing to use it. So this is what it's like. Then you, you go home and then you start typing your notes and there's a lag because there's a VPN and all the HIPAA requirements, the privacy requirements. So there's a ever so subtle la lag with entering data from home, which makes it absolutely painful. And then you've got to click all these boxes, otherwise you don't get paid. Because if you don't say, oh, I did a smoking cessation counseling, or I, I you know, did this or that, first of all, you could get sued. Second of all, you're not going to get paid by the insurance company because you didn't document. And if you didn't document, it didn't happen. And then the problem is there's access to all the data. And if you're worried about your patients, you might go looking at that. And then you realize, oh, you know, even though I signed out to this other doctor, I'm so type A and so I actually care about these patients. I better just call the nurse's station and make sure they give a little potassium because this potassium's low or whatever it is. And that, and that keeps you up at night or it keeps you typing. And then there's your kid saying, can you read a bedtime story? And I'm like, just one more note. And that ends up going into 12 more notes. And so that, that and this is a documented thing. Like people talk about at the, the end of pajama time. And is this mostly f happening with primary care physicians or hospitalists? Like would a specialist have a different kind of experience or is this across the board? They have different experiences, but I'm not sure they're that different. And when I talk to my specialist colleagues and I've been around the country, I speak to medical groups, they, they say the same thing. It's like, yeah, it's just brutal. It's a little better for them. Primary care is worse just because there's high, high volume and high complexity of the patients and they have to do everything uh, and coordinate specialty care and all of this. Whereas the specialists at least have a narrower field of focus. It can still be very difficult, but they have a little bit more focused stuff, which is part of the appeal of the specialties. So yeah, it's, it's, it's that way. And, and remember nurses, physician assistants, all these other uh, groups in healthcare, they're suffering too. Nurses spend a lot of time charting in, in the chart instead of being at the bedside, actually uh, you know, monitoring the patient and being with them. And it just makes their lives miserable. What kind of people are going into general practice now? 
So, you know, and this is part of the stigma of it. It's people, it's, it's kind of two categories of, eh, I'm really simplifying it. I have to be careful how I say this because I will piss off everybody. But the truth is the smartest of the smartest people who are the most idealistic and caring often will go into primary care because it, they feel called to it. So you have that group and they're, and they're hard. You have to go find them because their practices fill up instantly. And then you've got the people who are like, yeah, I went into medicine because, you know, I don't know. It's just a, it was a path and it's a guaranteed shot to the middle class or whatever. And maybe they go into it because it's a little harder to get into some of the specialties, but you can find these people throughout the people who are phoning it in. They, they do exist in medicine and they're widespread. And listen, I'm just being honest. Like I, I went to UCSF, I went to Stanford. I've seen shitheads that I wouldn't let touch my dog, like at all these institutions. So it's, it's across the board. Um, because it's a human endeavor and this is, and it's very complex. And what you want is someone with very good intuition, who cares deeply about patients, who can listen and be present for you and knows how to navigate the technology. And that's a, that's a hard thing to do, but these people exist. So you get those people and then you get people who are kind of phoning it in. And then the people who are just there for, to really kind of have the combination of lifestyle, money, and intellectual interest will sometimes do the specialties. But again, this is very, I'm stereotyping in a way that's probably not fair, but that's kind of how the culture of medicine sees it too. Yeah, well, part of the reason I asked this is that I had this uh, this odyssey of trying to find a general practitioner, which I still have not found. And then, you know, in the meantime, I had a conversation with someone I know who's a specialist, and she just went on this epic rant. First of all, to your point, every time she, you know, makes files an insurance claim, one of the major, I'll just say United Healthcare, she says she has to fax the entire record, the patient's entire record, like from start to finish over there just to get one thing approved. And they often don't approve it. Okay. That's right. Is that, okay. <laughs> that, so that, what that, yeah. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's called a prior authorization. In order to get anything done, you have to get approval from the, you gotta get a prior authorization from the insurance company, which means getting on the phone with them and they were, they're not gonna take, they're not gonna let your minion do it. You gotta do it and you gotta fax, fax, fax. Because yeah, yeah, exactly. Who <laughs> was it? The fax, the C prompt and the fax machine. Exactly. We're, you know, I like to talk of it this way. When I do talks, I say, you know, in many ways being a, uh, in healthcare is like being in the Harry Potter universe. Like there are two parallel universes. There's the muggles, the non-medical people who get to enjoy cars and cell phones and a, a modern life and nice clothes. And then you have the magical medical types who, yes, they get to wear long robes and they have the wand of the stethoscope and they speak the Latin words like expectorate sputonum and all of this, but they are hobbled with technology that is archaic, you know, like owls to communicate while well, we use pagers still. And it's just, it's ridiculous. So yeah, it, it, it is, is like that. And, it's, and, and so United, as a good example, is like one of the big behemoths in behemoths in healthcare. And what they're doing to try to in, increase profits is they're buying up all these physicians. So now these physicians are employed by their torturer. It's almost like a Stockholm syndrome. And they're like, yeah, well, at least, you know, now we don't have to do the prior off because it's all internal. It's like, this is the end of our special. This is the end of our calling when that happens because United is the fucking worst. All of them are. Let's be totally honest. I mean, what you need is clinicians aligned with payment providers in a way where everybody's skin is in the game and they're sharing data, not where one owns the other. Yes. Okay. And the second part of what she said was that, and this is why I actually thought of her, 
that the primary care physicians who seem to be practicing that anybody can get in to see, she just thought we're not paying attention. We're completely asleep at, at the wheel. That's a nice way of putting it. She said she had had a patient who finally, I don't know if it was an urgent care doctor or somebody, some random in- internet primary care person he got in to see who prescribed him something that could have killed him actually uh, and didn't bother to check about, you know, look into his history at all. Yeah. So this is how I see this. And we all know stories about that. And in healthcare, the way it works is the culture of medicine is everybody hates everybody else. Meaning, you know, the specialists talk shit about the primary care docs, the primary care docs talk shit about the specialists. There's, there's envy, there's, there's frustration, there's all those things. That's a typical politics. And, and, and I think a lot of administrators and other people use that to kind of control doctors too. But here's what's actually possibly the larger picture happening there, which is, Imagine you're a primary care doctor, even at your best and you're smart and, you're, and you care. You've got 30 to 40 patients a day. You've got an electronic health record that's just a cash register with some patient stuff tacked on it. You're being yelled at by everybody. The patients are getting belligerent because the culture has shifted where you know everybody yells at everybody. And you're just hoping the specialist can offload some of the work that you just simply can't do. So you'll often refer to a specialist who then gets pissed because you're referring something simple because you don't have the time to or bandwidth to do it. So it's kind of this tragedy all around. It, it really is. And, and uh, so you have to fix primary care before I, before I think you can fix medicine, which is what you know, we were trying to do as well. And I think we succeeded to some degree. And our company, Turntable Health, actually was partnered with a company called Iora Health, which merged with One Medical, which is now purchased by Amazon. So I keep telling, I keep telling doctors, all roads lead back, all roads lead to Bezos. I I tell, I tell doctors like Amazon will fuck up what they've bought, but they'll normalize it before they fuck it up. And that's good because it's team-based primary care focused, well-resourced technology enabled, but not technology enslaved preventative medicine. That's relationship-based. I mean, that's, that's the goal where you can get, you can get an appointment with them. Okay, well, so this is leading into what I wanted to ask you next. So you talk about healthcare 3.0. That's the world in which your your company exists in. Tell us, tell us what that means in the simplest possible terms. Right. So if 1.0 was this old school doctor led, you know, relationship based thing, more, very right brain, right, more holistic and kind of intuitive and contextual. Health 2.0 was this left brain reductionist, break everything into parts, make it an assembly line, run by corporations, health as a commodity, and healthcare providers as raw materials in the assembly line. Health 3.0 is the first emergent that kind of, it's kind of this, based on um, integral theory by Ken Wilber, where this, this, or spiral dynamics, this kind of developmental theory, where it says these stages of development arise and that the first stage that arises that actually looks at all the previous stages as essential but partial is this kind of integral stage. I call it the alt-middle It's it or health 3.0. So 3.0 says yes to 1.0's relationship and physician autonomy and yes to 2.0's quality improvement, science-based stuff, population health, technology enablement, but it kind of integrates and rejects the kind of shadow aspects of that. And then it emerges something new, which is actually bigger than the sum of of its parts, which is a kind of a 
it almost behaves like an organism. It's a team-based model where everyone's practicing at the top of their training in service of not just the patient, but in service of each other. And the technology enables a fundamentally human relationship and it's incentivized differently. So it's paid. You're actually paid to keep people healthy. And that means you can do whatever it takes. You're not micromanaged to do that, but you're given resources to do that. Tools, resources, and autonomy, meaning technology, tools, resources, meaning team, and autonomy, meaning the latitude, not micromanaged by some bureaucrat, to actually do that. And that's kind of the model that, that I think Health 3.0 is, is based on. And it, it's more like a, a holistic right brain, left brain synergy. And that's kind of what we're shooting for with this idea of Health 3.0. You have something called Turntable Health. Explain what that is. Is it? It's a physical clinic in Las Vegas, for starters. Where are you at with it now? Right. So we built it uh, back in 2013 as a model for how we could build a Health 3.0 clinic. And the idea was you, you for a flat fee. And at that point, it was $80 a month for unlimited access to a team of doctors, health coaches, licensed clinical social worker, nurses, pharmacists. And you can reach us any way you like, text, email, uh, Zoom, phone, whatever you want to do, show up. We had a yoga studio on premises where we could teach meditation. We had a teaching kitchen and we, but so, so $80 a month is not affordable for many people. So what we did was we actually partnered with an insurance company called the Nevada Health Co-op. And we said, let's do something different. Let's put something on the Obamacare exchange where people could get federal subsidies to get insurance. But the requirement, if they pick our product, is they have to use us for primary care. The insurance company then pays us that fee per patient per month. And we, in exchange, partner with them to actually show the outcomes that we're actually saving money and improving outcomes. So they'll say, okay, we'll invest in you. This is way more than we normally pay for primary care, but you're going to show us that you're going to reduce hospitalizations, reduce specialty visits and all that. And we did all those things and it actually worked really well. So for three years, we had around 4,000 patients. And in 2017, we had to close. Why? Because the insurance company, Nevada Health Co-op, went out of business because the co-ops that were funded with government money, they never got re-upped. It was all kind of political football. So they were gone. And then we went to United fucking health and said, hey, this model works. You're the 800 pound gorilla in Las Vegas. Like you've seen what we do. And they go, yeah, we would actually, you know, their executives like, yeah, we would actually pick this for our family. Like, this is great. I'll tell you what, we'll give you like you know, and I can't, I can't reveal specifics because I'm sure they'll come after me or something. They're just horrible people, especially in <laughs> Vegas. Um, uh, they, um, they, they said, well, we'll give you X, which was like absolutely nothing. Oh, and, and you'll have to charge a copay, which is not in our model because once you start charging copays for visits, a copay is a deterrent. It's a way to turn a, a relationship into a transaction. Like, oh, we don't want to see too many patients, so let's charge a copay. What you want is a patient to be able to have unlimited access to that care, especially when they're well, so you can keep them well. And so that would have broken the model. So we told them to fuck off and we closed that clinic and our partners, Iora Health, then focused on elders in the Medicare Advantage space. And that's where they found a lot of success because in those plans, the insurance company, Medicare, would give you a flat sum of money to take care of a population of patients. And they were very good at that um, because they optimized the model to prevent disease in elders. Um, and that's why they were purchased by One Medical, which focused on younger people and commercial patients. And then the whole thing was purchased by Amazon. And we'll see what happens there. Okay. So forgive me if I'm sounding, this is very much out of my depth, but I still don't understand how they make money in that model. Like if the patients, if a lot of patients aren't paying anything, you're still relying on the insurance company. 
So I don't, how are you actually making a profit? Right. So the way you'd make money is the insurance company pays us per patient per month, like a membership fee, like a gym. And the technical term is capitation, but it's, I like, I like to think of it like a membership model. So they'll say, okay, we'll give you, you know, X dollars per patient per month. And these patients will sign up and you take care of them. And if you do well, maybe we'll increase that PM PM per patient per month next year. Now, what do the patients pay? Well, they're paying premiums to the insurance company and the government is subsidizing the difference if they're low income. So that's the kind of premise of Obamacare. So they'll get coverage. Some of it may be subsidized if they're low income. So they may never have had coverage before. Now they have insurance coverage. And if there's a catastrophic problem, the insurance covers their hospital visit and that kind of thing, just like regular health insurance. They may have a deductible where they'll have to pay until they reach the deductible. But for primary care, they don't have to pay the deductible. The insurance company will pay that because insurance company sees it appropriately as an investment in preventing disease and actually keeping these patients healthy. And that's what we don't do in this company in this country is prevent disease. So we deal with all the outcomes of failure of that. Also in this country, we don't address social determinants of health, poverty, education, food, deserts, all that. So it shows up on the on the doctor's doorstep and then they're like, well, healthcare system, you deal with this. Well, then we don't have the bandwidth to deal with you when you're looking for a primary care doctor because we're drowning in all the chronic disease from the failure of society. So it's kind of like that. Okay. And when people say Obamacare made everything worse, what do they mean? So this is a, so this is a classic example of, uh, you may have good intentions, but these are complex, multi-dynamic systems with many players. So Obamacare did a couple of things. One is they said, okay, we're going to cap how much insurance companies can profit. So what insurance companies did then, if that was a cap as a percentage of the premiums you pay to insurance companies, what they would do is they would say, well, okay, then let's just spend more money and that next year the premiums will be higher. So we'll, our percentage will actually be higher for profit. So they start gaming it that way. Then they go, you know what? We can't fully profit on the insurance aspect. Let's start owning the physicians. So they do that. And then the government was pushing um, electronic health records saying, hey, we need to electronify these health records because this, this industry is backwards. So they had these incentives, but they never said, well, these systems should talk to each other. So across different hospitals and clinics. So it's kind of like a tower of Babel. This electronic record doesn't talk to that one. And that costs huge amounts of money and, and bad care. And it allows these oligopoly players to start happening like Epic. So that's kind of, it's it, all these good intentions gone bad. And then it creates a primary care shortage because you know they were kind of focused on primary care. There's a million things that happen. Again, good intent, cover Americans so that they have access to healthcare. And it again starts making you think, well, how should this transformation happen? It can't be a top-down transformation solely because it doesn't work that way. It has to be clinicians and patients advocating for this kind of 3.0 model and then advocating to payers and government to fund it in the correct way and reward it and measure it correctly. And I think it, it's going to require all those pieces to come into play in order to transform the system. So uh, this Amazon run <laughs> model now, what is that going to look like? Like if I like, do I go on Amazon and um, put a physical in my in my shopping cart and check out? And I'm all good. <laughs> yeah, you get you get a drone um, delivery of like uh, an anima. Uh, oh. which is really the only like way to whole, deliver There's an a subculture that's by drone. Yes, it's yeah. a subreddit, uh, you know, <laughs> drone slash anus slash enema. 
Um, but that's a lot. That pe- a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. You weren't actually visited by aliens to do an anal probe. It's just an Amazon <laughs> probe. Oh wow! Yeah, man, it's starting. The pieces are starting to click together. This whole X Files thing is starting to really make sense. Um, yeah, it was all Amazon just just doing a beta test. <laughs> you weren't probed <laughs> anally. It was just Bezos beta testing his shit. Yeah, no, no. So nobody knows what Amazon's going to do, right? But I'll say this: like what what they see is that healthcare hasn't had cost, quality, and convenience like other sectors. And so they can make it convenient in a variety of ways, telehealth, finding a doctor over VS, you know, search and those kind of things. They, they can do all those things and they can operationally make things very efficient. But the encouraging thing is by having Iora Health, which were our partners, they now have a chronic disease prevention model that they can actualize. And so potentially they could do a lot of good. Now, I don't trust Amazon with my data and a lot of people won't. So, and and I also don't trust anybody that's not sort of deep in healthcare to understand how to do this. So they have every way to screw it up. Just like, you know, the whole Amazon Berkshire Hathaway chase thing where they were trying to transform healthcare just fell right on its face. Because when you go up against this three point some odd trillion dollar juggernaut, you're going to be resisted at every level. I mean, we saw that when we did our clinic at, you know, everybody else in Vegas was like, go die in a hole. You know, nobody wants their cheese moved and nobody wants their um, income messed up. You know, Upton Sinclair used to say, uh, you can't, it, it's very hard to get a man to believe something when his salary depends on him not believing it. And, uh, so, so it's, it's a huge, um, problem, but I think the tipping point's coming because people like you are saying, listen, I can't even get a doctor. And COVID showed how fragile our system was. And so I think it's inevitable that we're going to see this because otherwise it's a trillion dollar, multi-trillion dollar albatross around the economy's neck and the neck of wages. And it's, you know, it's, it's a regressive tax on poor people as well. So what's the relationship between what you're describing and concierge medicine? Great question. So concierge is a way that um, I think primary care physicians who want to spend a lot of time with patients find a way and never deal with an insurance company in theory, find a way off that grid. They say, okay, I'm not going to deal with insurance or I'm going to deal with insurance, but only minimally. And I'm going to charge the patients directly like a membership model, a fee per year or per month to have unlimited access to me. And that allows them to have fewer patients and do better care. Now, historically, concierge has been associated with more with more affluent patients because they're the ones who can afford, like if you wanted a doctor now, you'd go get a concierge doc, no problem. And you'd have great access, probably get very good care. And that'd be great, but you'd have to have the money to do that. So that's not a solution on the broader sense. So what we did was we said, sure, you can have concierge light $80 a month, which is actually cheap by concierge standards to access us. That's fine. So anybody can do that. But we actually want to transform healthcare. So let's do a model where we partner with existing insurance in that co-op arrangement. And let's put it on an ACA uh, Affordable Care Act exchange so that federal government can subsidize it. And that's what we did. So we said, okay, here's a way to test, is this model scalable using a combination of private and public funding. And I think that's what I always say is like, look, we always talk about how to pay for healthcare. We don't talk about the model you're paying for. If you get single payer universal healthcare right now and the government pays for it, all you're paying for is the shitty shit that we have now. And you're using the common funds to pay for it, which we already do to 50% of our healthcare, which is covered by some government payments, you know, including social security use being used for premiums. So, you know, fix the model and then you can talk about payment. That's what I always say. And I think we have these great models for better, 
better preventative care models. Because I'm hearing people talk now about how concierge medicine is not nearly as expensive as it used to be. I mean, I had been under the impression that it was like $100,000 a year or something. And then your doctor has like five patients. I, I don't know if that was some weird fantasy, but okay. No, it does happen. That does happen. Yeah. But now I'm hearing like it can be like as little as a thousand bucks a year or 5,000. And I, I guess, and I, what I'm trying to figure out is you still need insurance. So does it make sense to have a con this might be this is not exactly what you're doing so you, you might be this might be out of your area but like does it make sense to have a concierge doctor and also full insurance or you, do you have to have full insurance yeah yeah this, this is exactly actually in my area this is stuff that we were um mentally working on for quite a long time and i have to introduce a new term now i know it's already too much but direct primary care dpc is a movement that says hey, for a lower amount of money, like 40 to $80 a month, you can have concierge level care. We'll have a few more patients than the guy who's charging $30,000 a year, and there are doctors like that for the ultra-affluent, the Zuckerbergs and the like, right? So, but, but direct primary care says, hey, yeah, no, we can do that. But see, even for the affluent, most people will still need what we call wraparound catastrophic health insurance, meaning, insurance that covers <laughs> think think of it this way if you could have a like a, a gym membership for 40 bucks a month that keeps you kind of tuned up and healthy but what happens if you get injured in some way well then you'd need the kind of like car insurance like if you get in a wreck like your car insurance doesn't cover the mechanic and it doesn't cover i'm sorry it doesn't cover you know your oil changes and tire rotations you cover that well that's what you're doing with direct primary care you're paying a fee to cover those so then you buy the car insurance which says if i get in a wreck if i get cancer if i get in, a, in an actual injury if i have something happen that needs specialty care or uh, hospital care well then i need to to pay for that and the way you do that is you say okay let's make let's carve out primary care so that insurance doesn't cover primary care you pay that directly and then you pay a lower premium for the insurance and the, and the idea is the primary care will prevent a lot of that utilization when done correctly and resourced correctly well then insurance premiums drop overall cost of care drop everybody gets a primary care doc and they get coverage for tragedies if they happen and i think more affluent people can pay higher deductibles and lower income people can pay lower deductibles. And that's the way you make it a little more egalitarian and everyone gets covered. So there's ways to solve this, right? But we just haven't had the political will to do it. Right. So I'm going to use myself as an example, not out of solipsism, not entirely out of solipsism, but I think- <laughs> I like solipsism. Okay. I mean, you're, you're, you're basically only appearing in my consciousness right now. So- for all I know, you're not real. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, that's, I ask myself this hourly. <laughs> Daily. Yeah. So, um, because, you know, look, I'm a self-employed person. So I'm a freelancer. I think a lot of people are now more and more people. They don't, they're not working for companies. They have, they're buying their own insurance. Okay. So I pay out of pocket $700 a month for an insurance policy that is crappy, frankly. Brutal. Yeah. You know, and if I and I'm just a single person, if I had a family, I could be easily paying thousands, right? Yes. So if you've got kids, so I I'm paid actually twenty thousand yeah. dollars a year, yeah, for my family, okay. yeah. So yeah, okay. So I say I'm in a situation where I'm trying to decide: do I actually pay for you know pay out of pocket once a year for some kind of concierge practice, 
but I still have to have not only catastrophic policy, but like what happens for labs or what happens for like diagnostic screenings kind of thing. Like that's what I don't understand. Yeah. So let's talk about that. These are great questions. Boy, we should just, we'll just fix healthcare in this podcast. Um, because this, this, no, this is seriously, I mean, this is exactly what people like yourself and I and others are struggling with. So here, here's kind of the things that you could spend money on, right? Labs, imaging, uh, emergency room, hospital, specialty care. So how do we cover that? Well, let's say you pay a membership fee to a primary care doc. If that primary care doc is doing it right, they could have an onsite lab that draws your blood and charges you a basically cash pass-through price. So LabCorp, Quest, these big labs, they upcharge insurance and, and big health systems charge a shit ton for labs. So for example, I went and got a bunch of labs through our big healthcare conglomerate here and it costs like 500 bucks. And they weren't, they were yeah. by a bunch of labs. Yeah, right. It's crazy. Bunch of, and I have a high deductible plan, which means I don't get covered until I spend like six grand. So I'm paying for it out of pocket. Now, all I got was like a complete blood count, a lipid panel, like a thyroid test, like basic screening labs. So this, this year I said, well, I don't want to do that again. So I went on a website and saw it's called Ulta Labs. And I was like, oh, I can directly order these tests myself and pay cash. Oh, that entire panel was only $80 oh my cash. God. And I'm like, why don't I do that? Well, it turns out the direct primary care, because you don't, you don't, you shouldn't really be going out and ordering tests yourself, because honestly, you can get down a rabbit hole and it just cause harm. So let your primary care guy do <laughs> You're gonna it. You're going to be using the Theranos machine pretty soon. Exactly. exactly. Oh that. my gosh. Oh man, I want that <laughs> Steve Jobs turtleneck. And I'm going to just say, you know what? I can cure erectile dysfunction with a single drop uh, of you yeah. know, blood or whatever She's it is. I have uh, a lot of time now. Yes. She, yeah. Anyway. You know, jail will be good for her. It'll, she'll allow some um, meditation. But uh, and what she'll find may not be nice. So, 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 <laughs> so, you know, and it's crazy how, by the way, we, we've really villainized her, but like, you know, like the Enron guys and all this, it's kind of, there's this gender. Oh, I dichotomy know. There. Well, also, if you get a, a lot of uh, TV movies made about you, it's more likely. <laughs> That's to, true. Yeah. That's true. It's more um, likely. To, yeah. 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 Sorry, I didn't mean uh, to de derail us on, no, on Elizabeth no, no, Holmes, no. but uh, but yeah, no, this is fascinating because okay, because I have this exact problem. Like, so right, what do you I'm do? I'm not labs? a doctor. So, I'm not a doctor. I can't go ordering my own labs. That's uh, the problem, right? That's the thing. But you can through Alta Labs, even if you're not a doctor, uh, you can do it in California at least. So you can do it. But the thing is, you have to know. I, I wouldn't do that unless you really know what you're doing and you've you know you've been through it. And you know exactly what you need. But so hook up with a direct primary care doc. Let's say it's 50 bucks a month for that person. That person hooks up with the lab and passes along cash pay to you. And well, in that case, you're getting a, a complete blood count for 12 bucks. That's manageable. That's less than your copay would have been, you know, at a normal doctor or whatever. So you do that one thing. Now, what about drugs? I need some drugs then medication. Okay. Well, it might be that, and there are some direct primary care docs doing this. There's a lot of regulatory hurdles to overcome. You can have a direct pay pharmacy there where you pay cash, where you don't use your insurance for cheaper meds and it costs six bucks a month or 12 bucks a month, something like that. That's great. Now, if you need something big, that's where you do need catastrophic insurance. So you get set up with a plan that understand, now these don't really exist yet. They do in fits and starts around the country, but when they start designing plans that are carving this stuff out and say, okay, so for the catastrophic stuff, it's this, and this is what we'll charge you for that plan. It'll be less because we know you're hooked up with good direct primary care. That's one of the requirements of getting this insurance because they want to make sure you have a quarterback and you're not just going out and, you know, getting hurt 
Uh, well, then you have the full package. You have the auto insurance for when you crash the car, you and then you pay for the other stuff, but it's more affordable. And it's all tied together with electronic medical records that talk to each other. And the direct primary care doc is focused on prevention and relationship. So, and convenience. So you can do it by telehealth, you can do it by phone. So you're not like running, having to go to the office. The part of the reason doctors like you to come in is they weren't able to get paid otherwise, unless they physically saw you. So that's changing. So so that, that, you know, you can kind of t- patch that together. And then for people who have limited resources, that's when the government or uh, or even employers can step in. Right now, big self-funded uh, employers pay for roughly 50% of, you know, healthcare spend in the commercial space. And their skin is in the game. I've, I've done talks for these benefit managers for Walmart and Target and these big companies. And they, they're desperate to try to figure out how do we get better outcomes and save money? But they're also driven by inertia and by middlemen, these third-party administrators that sell them garbage policies and on, under the assurance that, okay, your CFO will be happy because it's the same thing we do every year and that kind of thing. So that culture has to change as well. We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here. I've been doing this show every week for more than two years, and I pretty much do it all by myself. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, or secret investment cabal. I do it because I love it. And if you love it or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. The old way of doing that was through Patreon. Now listeners support the podcast through my Substack page, megandaum.substack.com. You can subscribe for free, or you can become a paid subscriber for as little as $7 a month. That gets you extras related to the unspeakable. Things like early and ad-free access to the show, access to bonus content, and the opportunity to leave comments. If you join at the founding member level, you can join us every month on Zoom where a bunch of us get together and talk about recent episodes. Best of all, if you become a paying subscriber at any level, you'll never have to hear this message again. So go to megandaum.substack.com. That's M-E-G-H-A-N-D-A-U-M and join our community on the level that's right for you. And honestly, just telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, spreading the word means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking about. And with that, back to the interview. What do you think about nurse practitioners doing the job of doctors? Patients tend to love it or they think they love it because they have the idea that the nurse practitioner is more available, spends more time. I know physicians hate it. So this, okay, yeah. So this is a very politically fraught uh, conversation within healthcare. And one of the few times I was ever canceled by my own tribe was when I spoke out on behalf. <laughs> that should be a daily occurrence. If oh, you're yeah, doing your job right, that should happen every day. Now it, now it happens regularly. But in the old days, this was the first time it happened. And I was like, oh my God, I feel so excommunicated. And now I realize, hey, if that happens, it's like you said, you're doing something right. Like, fuck all the, all these people. But like, so and in the best way, meaning like if you're really thinking clearly in, in a critical way, you're going to piss off not only people in your own quote unquote tribe, but people across the board. And that's just how it is. How it is. So the way I pissed these guys off is I said, you know what? Nurse practitioners should be able to practice at the top of their training uh, and license, which means if you have a well-trained 
nurse practitioner, they're trained in a nursing model, which is different than the sort of medical model. So it's, it is more like, you know, they're trained to be more, you know, present as nurses are and those sort of things, but they, they aren't able to do some of the things that doctors are doing because doctors have the 10,000 hours plus of residency training that many nurse practitioners don't have. And nurse practitioners do lack in some ways a consistency of training. Now this is true for doctors too, let's be honest. There are doctors, there are doctors I wouldn't let touch me uh, and nurse practitioners that I would absolutely trust my life with. And so it's very variable overall. But the reason there's tension is doctors see nurse practitioners as undertrained and out of the scope of their practice and encroaching on their territory to some degree. And then some of them see actually the mistakes that nurse practitioners make and have to kind of quote unquote clean them up. Whereas, <laughs> I think what nurse practitioners see is doctors that are being very territorial, that are just straight up bullying them. And sometimes there's even a gender dynamic, like female doctors and female nurse practitioners do not get along sometimes because those same female doctors were bullied by female nurses when they were residents and medical students, whereas male doctors didn't get that. You know, calling them by their first name, all this other stuff that's kind of, you would never do that to a male doctor. So these interesting dynamics happen. And the reason I know this is that they've told me this. And so you have all this very complex thing. Now, what is it for the patient? So for the patient, it's whoever is present, listens, and seems to be really taking good care of you is, is the right person probably. Now, there can be people with really good bedside manners that are really shitty doctors who'll kill you, but you'll never know it and you'll die with a smile on your face and that'll be great. So, so there's that. And that's how doctors see it too. It's kind of like, well, you know, sometimes you want that surgeon who's a total asshole because they're a really good surgeon. But yeah, so my feeling is, team-based care is key. So if you have nurse practitioners, physician assistants, doctors on a team where everyone's doing their thing and supporting each other, that's the ideal. And that's what we tried to do at our clinic, but that's not always the, the easiest thing. So I'd say this, if you, you know, if you get a nurse practitioner in the emergency department or in primary care and you're comfortable with them and they're listening and they seem to be connecting the dots, then you're in a great place. If it's not, and if that's a doctor or a nurse practitioner, you need to keep kind of looking or ask the questions and see what's going on. Okay. All right. I want to talk to you about, call it the cognitive profile of a physician, maybe these days, maybe always, but especially these days. So I've talked a lot about on my show, on this show about how I used to think that if you were a doctor, you were just automatically really, really smart. Like, almost an intellectual. I'm laughing at myself now. I, I, I didn't really, I didn't know any doctors growing up. It's, they're not in my family, really not in my, certainly not in my immediate family. And I've been covering, you know, especially with the pandemic and we see this mass, massive distrust of medical establishment and we see all this mixed messaging in public health. I've covered the, the gender uh, debates a lot on this show. I've We've talked a lot about uh, gender youth medicine and the way that these big professional organizations in medicine, like the American Pediatric, uh, American whatever, the APA, and just the AMA, has been going along with a, a protocol that has very little data behind it because it's just sort of politically expedient or on the right side. And I've been amazed at the incuriosity of a lot of physicians. Are you amazed by that or are you just, is that just part of the course? <laughs> so it's funny. I, I've changed a lot too during the course of pre-pandemic, pandemic and after and seeing that, you know, I used to really have a degree of confidence in say CDC, um, NIAID, whatever the hell it is, Fauci's thing, you know, the whole nine in that 
I do believe in the scientific method and critical thinking. And I did believe that these folks generally follow that. And I think generally they did. But what we're seeing is physicians are human beings like everybody else, and they have their biases and they're, they're inclined to group think. They always have been. In fact, Ignaz Semmelweis, who was a, this is a classic story in the, I forget it was in the 1700s or 1800s. He was an obstetrician in Austria or somewhere like that. And what he discovered was these women were dying of sepsis in um, childbirth. So they'd get pregnant, they'd give birth, they'd die of sepsis. And what he found was that the nurse midwives uh, their patients who were, they were delivering the babies, they weren't dying of sepsis. And what he, when he observed what was going on, well, the doctors were going from patient to patient to patient because they were pretty busy uh, and they weren't washing their hands in between. This was before the kind of germ theory. And uh, the nurse midwives were. So he said, well, hey, well, let's test that out. And they did. And they found, oh, hey, you know what? If we just wash our hands or sterilize them in some way, these people don't die. The medical community basically ostracized him, treated him like shit because they're like, they couldn't imagine that they could be to blame for the deaths of pregnant women. They just, it was just abhorrent to their psycho psychology. And, and I think we see the same sort of group think inertia, lack of critical thinking now. And it's easier now to, to fall into that because they're so busy and overwhelmed. And so their cognitive faculties are taxed. They don't have the time to go and actually do primary research on this stuff. They're just going to listen to whatever the authority figure says. And if they're, if they're liberal, they're going to go on Twitter and they're going to believe whatever the mask advocates and the Ukrainian flag people and the um, hashtag BLM people are saying. And if they're conservative docs, they're going to believe whatever the hashtag ivermectin you know, a, a vaccine is going to cause nanobot people are saying. And, and so on both sides of it, they're falling into this really delusional kind of hive think and, and, and lacking the critical reasoning. And in a way they're, and they're able to go and do the research, but they, they game the research, the game, they game their search. They're using confirmation bias. They're checking out these very fake experts on both sides of this. So uh, yeah, it's very disappointing. And and the thing is, look, at, at the highest levels, these doctors are really smart people, but that just means they're as prone, if not more so, to the cognitive biases that everybody else is because they, they're not necessarily trained in in looking at those biases. And I know that the gender thing is not your wheelhouse at all, but maybe you could just sort of make some general observations. Like we are seeing surgeons, pediatric surgeons, going on social media bragging about doing mastectomies on kids 16 and under, for instance. Now, I'm not saying that libs of TikTok is representative of anything <laughs> at all. So I want to be very clear about that. But right. these aren't faked videos. This is not a faked moon landing. And I think what we're seeing is like a combination of incuriosity and God complex in some of these doctors. And that seems to me particularly lethal. Yeah, so I mean, I'll, I'll preface this by saying this. I'm not an expert in, like you said, I'm not an expert in transgender stuff or LGBTQ plus or any of this stuff. I did train at San Francisco General during the heights of the HIV uh, epidemic right before the sort of protease inhibitors kind of changed the game as they were coming online. And so I'm, I'm very familiar with these communities. and. In many ways, they're disenfranchised, they're, they suffer on many levels, they're discriminated against. So all that is true. But what you're pointing at is, okay, that may be true. So what do you do now? Do you, at the extreme of this kind of thinking, say, well, you know, let's then do this thing where if a kid at a young age identifies as X, we're going to give puberty blockers or we're going to do this, we're going to actually do surgery, we're going to do that. 
okay, that's, those are interventions. And every single intervention in medicine has a downside. So you have to study it carefully with randomized control trials, ideally, and so on. And what we haven't seen is that. What we've seen is some observational trials that are easily confounded. So there's a, not just an incuriosity, I think there's a, a, a kind of a moral taste bud thing going on. Jonathan Haidt, psychologist, I think he's, you've been on, he's been on your show, yes. talks of, yeah, what guy, he's one of my really intellectual idols because he talks about how everybody sees through these moral taste buds. And uh, I think there are many physicians who maybe lean left, who see it as a care versus harm, you know, kind of taste bud. And they're like, well, if the, you know, the kid wants this, then there's some observational data that giving them these surgeries is going to change their life. And they've already been discriminated against. We know that's a problem and they're more likely to, you know, die by suicide and so on. The conservative taste bud says, hey guys, like these are kids. They, they, they're, they, parents really ought to be <laughs> running this until they're 18 and you're doing something re irreversible. And then the actual good scientists are probably saying, we haven't studied this. This is a massive experiment that has consequences and you can be non-discriminatory and accepting of, you know, trans um, people and, and all different genders and all that without jumping on a scientific bandwagon that's unproven. And so my feeling is, again, I'd love to know more about it. I'd love to see good data. I'd love to do trials. I do think it's been politicized on all sides because you know, my mother, who's a psychiatrist, has said, you know, like she had many trans, gay, lesbian, the whole gamut of patients. And she says, you know, the, nu the number of patients who were truly like, you know, um, uh, felt that they were gender dysphoric or really out of, born into something they weren't, um, was, was quite small, but it was real, but it was small. So the question is, are we now turning it into a kind of a social contagion where it's kind of cool? Like I know there's a private school in the Bay area and my, my, I know a pediatrician, uh, you know, like a quarter of the students identify as non-binary. And that's just not con consistent with what we know about, <laughs> you know, anything. Epidemiologically uh, unlikely. Unlikely, unlikely yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, We've this is something we've covered a lot here. I'm curious, like, if you have thoughts about people who say, this is big pharma, that, that this is, ultimately, we should follow the money. There are pharmaceutical companies selling Lupron and these puberty blockers. And ultimately, this is what it's about. Like, how much credence do we give to that line of thinking? Well, I, I don't know that it's enough money to really, because um, even even pharma executives, as, as nasty as they can be, uh, you know, they have kids too. And I, I don't know that... Uh, they're overtly doing that. But I do think that the structural biases are there. So if there's money to be made from it, then again, Upton Sinclair, it's hard to get a man to believe something if his salary depends on him not believing it. So this can happen with any intervention in healthcare that generates revenue. So uh, heart interventions like bypass surgery, like uh, stenting, you know, there's some data that some of those, <laughs> quite a fair number of those are not necessary. You can do diet, medications, et cetera, and they're just as effective, but yet we keep doing these things. Oh. Uh, and this is quite common. Actually, my friend, Dr. Robbie Pearl wrote a book called Mistreated about how a lot of the stuff that we do, you know, and Paul Offit, who's a big vaccine advocate, has been on my show several times, has written a book about how we do a lot of things in medicine that are really not, they're not shown to help, but they do generate revenue and it's an unconscious bias. So I'm sure there's a component of that, but there's even the cultural component of, in medicine of like, hey, do something rather than do nothing. Someone looks like they're suffering. Let's do something. 
and I sometimes doing <laughs> doing nothing but being present, but having that relationship, but being there for the patient is enough. And the same goes with treating mental illness with medications or ADHD or any of these other things. You know, we have a reductionist left brain health 2.0 attitude towards this stuff, and it's it's a rewarded financially. Right. So you've been canceled by your own side several times now. You you mentioned earlier in this conversation. Has most of that come up in the last couple of years? So, I mean, I began hearing about you in the context of of vaccine discussions and the pandemic, and you you're you're in the heterodox space, as they say. So, what has that been like for you as a physician? I know you've talked about, for instance, Monica Gandhi, who's also in this space, a doctor, getting her grand ra- rounds canceled because she, yeah. she said the wrong thing like online. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. This is interesting because, okay, you, you always have to look at like, what are the financial incentives to like, what's going on? Like for Monica, like she's a full professor at UCSF and this is what she loves to do. She loves to teach. She loves to do grand rounds. She's an advocate for her patients and all of that. Now, if she says something that is not in line with the orthodoxy, the orthodoxy doesn't like that and they push back. But Monica's a unique figure because she manages to do it in a way where I think people still really have a lot of respect for her. So she's managed to weave that weave that thread through the needle. Whereas others, you know, Jay Bhattacharya, you know, and others, and you know, my co-podcast host Vinay Prasad has, has it kind of goes on all ends of this too. But let's let's look at myself. So I don't make money seeing patients anymore right? Uh, you know, I'm volunteer faculty at UNLV. Um, I left Stanford. Like I, I, first of all, like my wife is a, is a doctor at Stanford. Like I, I technically don't have to work, which means I can say whatever I want. Mm-hmm. And the way I make money is people subscribe to my show and I have a supporter group. It's like a Substack, and there's some ad revenue. And sometimes I do talks. So there you go. If all my talks got canceled and all my subscribers left and all that, I'd still be all right. You know, because I've worked for how many years and I don't spend a lot of money. So I'm in this position where I'm, I can get canceled financially and it won't literally cancel me um, in that way. But there's the mental aspect of people you thought were in your quote unquote tribe now telling you you're a piece of shit because you violated the dogma. And this tribe for me was the kind of pro-science skeptic crowd that kind of looks at things like, you know, faith healing and this kind of stuff and, you know, certain aspects of alternative medicine as, you know, not helpful. And when I started talking about vaccines as, hey, you know what? Maybe you don't need the fifth dose of an Omicron-specific bivalent booster when you already have great protection against severe disease because you've been infected and gotten a dose and so on. Um, Now they're calling me an anti-vaxxer or worse, this is my favorite, anti-vaxxer adjacent. (laughs) There's so many ways to be adjacent. I know, right? It's it's like the next big identity. Like, oh well, I identify as <laughs> <right>. adjacent. <laughs> why I'm isn't Megan it just adjacent. non-binary? I feel like I'm intellectually non-binary. I don't know why that has. Oh, that's caught. great. Well, but it's like uh, it, it's true. It's like yeah. it's, it's literally true, as they say. It, I, it's uh, intellectually non-binary is something I'm stealing from you. That's great. I mean, I I I, I use this term alt middle kind of tongue in cheek term, but it really is. It means heterodox. Just kind of being able to see all sides and as true but partial and not really trying to avoid the tribalism. But you know, you and I probably both fall into that kind of because tri- the heterodox tribe is our tribe at this point. It's kind of no. like if you see someone's, you know, like you We're see someone's tribalism tr- with our tribe, with our tribe, damn it. Like our tribe is good at fighting tribalism. And then when you see someone's in that tribe, you're like, okay, they're probably okay. It's like, well, you don't know that. Um, but some of but them yeah. have gone crazy. 
They really have. No, they really have. They absolutely have. I don't know if you want to name names, but yeah, it's it's because because of I think, and again, this is a divergent thing. Just humor me for one second. In the world of COVID, where everyone seems to be an influencer now, especially if you have some degree or something, if you're a heterodox influencer, if you're a if you're a you know mainstream medical influencer, you're really inclined by audience capture to say the things you know your audience wants to hear and not be rejected, and that's a form of cancellation, right? So. I know that if I say certain things, half my audience is going to walk away, but I go ahead and say them anyways, because at this point, I just don't care. But there are some who are new to the influence game. You know, I've been doing this for 10 years, like you said, since 2010, who are like, oh shit, man, I'm fu- people finally like me and I'm making money. I see that you know? all and the they, time. Yeah. Right? They like me. And so I got to double down and triple down on this. And you know, you have guys on there that started out really rational on COVID with rational skeptics who are now like just down the rabbit hole of conspiracy. And and you know, because their comment section lights up with people going, yeah, bro, that's right, man. The great reset. And you're like, oh man. <laughs> I <laughs> think they believe? believe it, but I, I, I don't think yeah, they, they do believe it. Yeah. I think they believe in, in what they're saying. And the other thing that frustrates me too, I mean, I'm going to name. Well, actually, I will name names. I mean, so Brett and Heather have been on my show. Heather was actually the very first guest on this podcast. She was the inaugural guest. And one of the things I love talking with her about have to do with feminism and evolutionary biology and psychology. And she and I are almost Mm. exactly the same age. And we sort of have very similar observations about our own femaleness and our relationship to womanhood. So she and I I think can always have really good discussions about that, among other things. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. you know, where they've gone with vaccines, I, I don't agree with, but I still value Brett. We're talking about Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein, in case there's one person out there who doesn't know who we're talking <laughs> yeah, about. That one uh, guy. Yeah, <laughs> I value their presence because I do think there are things that I personally don't want to lose. I, I want to be able to talk to them about certain things. So I don't want to cancel them out because I I disagree with what they're saying or I even think there's, you know, some harm being done. Uh, so that's the problem is like then people say, well, how dare you? How dare you have them on to talk about anything? And I kind of want to say, well, you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's a great there. It's a, I know it's a great question, you know, because they are really smart and incredibly helpful on so many topics. And, uh, and, and, and the thing is, it's so easy to get captured by this stuff and to actually believe it because especially if you're not a, a medical physician, it's easy to apply, say, evolutionary theory to something that maybe it doesn't quite fit. So it's easy to, to see how that could happen and you can do it with perfectly good intent, but there's also this huge unconscious stuff that's happening and it happens in medicine. So I'm, I'm taking credit for this for all of the, the profession of medicine that we do this all the time. Again, Upton Sinclair, it's, it's very hard to get you to believe something. You'll believe the opposite if your salary depends on it because it's almost like you have to. And um, you know, Jonathan Haidt's model again, elephant and writer, elephant being this unconscious uh, part of our mind that we write on that makes these snap decisions when we're not even aware. And then the writer is the rational part purportedly on top that has words and it will just it's the servant of the elephant it, it's it's its press secretary it's its lawyer so the elephant feels something like oh my god I, I still have to make a living come on figure something out writer and the writer does all the necessary research to back up that 
thing that the elephant's saying. So it's really kind of the tragedy of COVID that we see it on all sides. Like, in the, and again, I'll use these terms like because they're pejorative terms for each side. You know, so COVIDian side, like lockdown, closed schools, masked toddlers, all that. And then the COVIDian side, which is the pejorative on that side, I prefer, you know, Peter Lindbergh's thesis and antithesis side. So the antithesis side saying all the opposite things. And, and you know, they're, they're, each side is kind of captured by its own groupthink and its own biases. And again, if you're an influencer on either of those sides, to say the anything nuanced is to get you totally jacked. And, and it's, you know, you're asking a lot of the human mind, but I don't think you are. Like, that's what you're focusing on, right? Is critical thinking. Like, how, how you know, especially when you're talking about, and by the way, I'd love to ask you about or or talk about women's experiences in healthcare too, as distinct from men's and what those differences are, because it's a huge issue. And in training in, in female um, physicians, like their experience is so different than mine was. And I would watch it happening too in the 90s when I was training, and you would just see this overt sexual kind of um, aggressiveness of the male uh, attending physicians towards the female trainees it was overt in those days. And, but then there's these very subtle things too, like, uh, you know, again, the nurse is calling the female residents by their first name, but calling the male residents doctors and patients doing the same thing. Oh, are you my nurse? And then the female physician saying, oh no, I'm, I wish I were upgraded to nurse. I'm the physician. And these kind of little things, but yeah, the dynamics were interesting. Anyways, I forget what we were talking about. Sorry. <laughs> oh, well, no, I mean, I think it's in the sort of, we've all had to be we've all had to become entrepreneurs in this kind of intellectual space, you know, like we've all had to mm -hmm. sort of pivot. And I think it's, so you're talking about how you can say anything you want, because even if you get canceled, you, you've got your wife's salary. I, I mean, but you also have a business. I mean, you, you've got, you're not relying on her salary and your Substack. You've got other irons in the fire. I think that, you know, in terms of like, the nuance space, which I definitely, you are in that. Like, I think you are very, very disciplined. That's one of the reasons I have, I'm having you on the show. There's a whole lot of people I won't have on the show. And there is a penalty for not being too hard on one side or the other. Like, that's not what gets the eyeballs. And so yeah. you have to just, the fact that I can sleep at night makes up for the fact that I don't have a bigger audience, but. Yeah, you nailed it. I mean, you and me should form a support group of two because, uh, Literally, like, you know, I, I used to sell, I, I occasionally will sell, like, my uh, ops person, who's my only current employee, is a NICU nurse, and she does a lot of merch for me, because she's really good at that stuff. She's quite crafty. And um, we had a shirt that just said, nuance. <laughs> that was oh, it. Oh, that's <laughs> my, my merch is nuanced AF. I'll have to send you no a No way. Okay, see, oh, yeah, that's no, way I have everything. Oh, that's yeah, nuanced AF. Yes. See, no. I should have stolen your shit. That's great. Yeah, <laughs> but, but the idea is, like, you're right, you cannot... But you know, I'll say this though, I'll say this, I, I'm actually encouraged. There is a silent, and this is again, a pretty loaded term from like the conservative eighties. There's a silent majority of people that are like us in that sense that they're looking for people they can trust who can actually see the sides and aren't going that hard, but are entertaining enough that if they wanted to go hard, they could. And I think, I think those people do exist and they will be eventually rewarded, but even if the reward is they sleep at night, like you said, 
there's sometimes when I don't sleep at night, when I go, I'll do a show and I go hard because something takes me, like some emotion takes me. And then immediately after uploading it, I regret it because I realized I wasn't nuanced enough. And then I'll stay up at night going, God damn it. Like, I know the people who are going to disagree with this are going to be right on some level and I need to do something about it. So then maybe I'll do a follow-up show where I'll, I'll express the nuanced Like what part. kind of thing? What gets you worked up? Yeah, I'm trying to think here. Um, because it, 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 you know, with so many things, like if I come hard on, let's say, you know, um, let's say I'm, I'm complaining about a teacher's union continuing to keep schools closed. And I'll say something like that. Then I'll realize because I've gotten messages from people who work in how hard it is to be a teacher and how that union is actually fighting for this and what it's like having kids coughing all over you when the media has instilled all this fear in you about COVID. And then I'll think, you know, I should have phrased that differently, or I should actually propose the the other side of this and say what that is steel man, the argument to do it. Right. So doing more steel manning, I think is, and, and for people who don't know what that is, it means just really, uh, really arguing the counterpoint that you disagree with, but arguing it so well that the person who's proposing it would say, yeah, that's pretty much what I mean. But you can't think of everything. I mean, you also can't spend the entire time doing the to be sure. That's clearing, for sure. Right. That's for sure. Yeah. How do you, uh, oh no, sorry, go ahead. I was no, no, no. I, yeah, I, I was just going to say, and also when I do these things, it's often a, a very improvisational, like I'll do the research and then I'll just improv it in a, either live or in a single take. And so a lot of things get missed when I do it that way. What do you say to people who are masking toddlers in the park, not to their face, but behind their backs? Okay. So in my mind, and I'll be totally transparent. I think what a fucking idiot. Like th that's the first thought that my elephant spins up because at heart, my mind is, is it, like many human minds, very judgmental and it'll throw up a judgment right away. And then what'll happen is I'll see that conditioned judgment because that's kind of what my elephant is. It's like, it just hates stupidity in that way. Then it will process it and say, okay, but this person has been conditioned by all this media saying that, you know, everyone gets long COVID, even kids. <laughs> and the, who knows what's going on? Maybe the kid has a immune compromise. Maybe but they're, something, they're maybe vaccinated they're, now. I'm sorry. I'm also don't, I can't follow this. Are the kids vaccinated now? Um, so the majority of kids still aren't. They can be. So let, let's, okay. let's put it this way. Let's, let's put it this way. I think your point is this. They can be vaccinated. So this is what this is what my first response is always. Actually, so sorry, so sorry. First response is you're an idiot because of all the things you're pointing at. Second response is okay, but that's not really their fault. This is what's really going the nuance of it. Okay, then the final response is what I would say to their face is if they asked me, "Hey, do you think I should still be masking my kid?" And I say, "Listen, you have all the options now to keep your child safe." from COVID, even though their, their safety level at baseline is really, really high because they're just not that susceptible. But let's say you're worried about that. You can now vaccinate and boost your child. So if you're concerned about severe disease, the vaccine will probably help with that, although not much because the kid's already so safe from it. So now you have that option. Now, what, what additional benefit does the mask apply? And the answer is we have no idea because there's not been a good randomized control trial looking at kids and masking. The type of mask that kid is wearing is probably not helping because we know that- Yeah, it matches their outfit. Yeah, like that's right. It's like a animal's mask. It's Remember got, it's got Elsa that, from Frozen yeah. on it, right? Yeah, you could be, which, might get a mask to match your little princess, you know, your little Disney princess. You know what I would have yeah. wanted when I was growing up? I don't know how old you are, Megan. It's not nice to ask that, that oh, question. Oh, I tell else. everybody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm, I'm 49. Oh yeah. I'm 52. And, okay. So we're cohort. So remember Underoos? 
Yes, and I was gonna. Yes, exactly. And Granimals. Do you remember Granimals? Dude, Granimals were the bomb. And Osh. Yes. What was it? Oshkosh, where like you could Osh- match your Oshkosh Bagash. Oshkosh Bagash. That's right. So yeah. I would think we you could have underoos that match your mask, that mask that match your undershirt and all that, and have a whole matching thing run mm-hmm. around the house like fully matched. Yeah, but so so anyways, I tell the kids, you know, I t- I would tell them like, you know, from a risk standpoint, if you really understood risk, I think you wouldn't probably elect to mask your kid outdoors in this park or even indoors in most situations. And it's really about understanding risk and you do it from understanding what their moral matrix is like, what do they care about? You know, what are their concerns? If they're like, well, I just, you know, if, if the real truth is they're putting a mask on their kid because they're culturally uh, acclimatized by where they live, their politics, and the fact that they hate Trump, um, well, then that's a different conversation. That's a harder conversation to have. You, you almost want to indirectly point to that, but do it from a place of love, which is hard to do. You almost want to do it in the third person. Like, you know, I've seen a lot of people who just, it's such a tribal badge, like the mask if you're liberal, the no mask if you're not. And the truth is, if we just understood risk, we could decide mask or not for ourselves and for our kids. And that's really what we need to do. Yeah. Although I see a lot of Latino families masking their kids outside and they're not doing it to, to virtue signal. Yeah. I see it in Southern, in, in Southern California all the time, like large families in the park. I don't know. I mean, Maybe they're not vaccinated. Maybe none of them are vaccinated, or I, or maybe I. They saw so much. There were so many deaths in those communities. Maybe oh. it's a result of that. What an interesting question. I mean, I'd love to study that because if you look at that population, they've disproportionately suffered, like you said, and yet they're also disproportionately unva- under vaccinated. Although not in San Francisco. In San Francisco, there was a lot of out- outreach to that community, so high levels of vaccination there. That's a really good question. And you, cause you wonder, because if there is cultural conditioning or sorry, meaning like the culture is conditioning you, how does that manifest there? These, you know, this is the thing. Where does, what does this have to do with quote unquote, the science? This is more about like political science and social science. And you, you know what I mean? It's a, it's a multifactorial thing. You know, Bay, Bay Area is, uh, is finally starting to loosen up. I'm seeing much, much, much less masking. Even as we enter the winter, it's really quite surprising. And, and what's ironic is that masking probably might have helped if there were high-grade masks for RSV and flu a little bit, but now people are just like, fuck it all, which I think is just fine because we've lived with these respiratory viruses for how many millennia? And you do have a flu vaccine available and that sort of thing. Many, many, Most people aren't getting it. And you're not, uh, are you boosted? Or how, what are you telling people <laughs> so about it's funny. that? So yeah, my story is I got the first dose right away as soon as I could, as soon as I could get in line as a healthcare professional. Then I got the second one, both two, <clears throat> the month later or whatever. I got Moderna, so I forget it was three weeks later, it was a four, four weeks later. And then came the first booster. And I talked with Paul Offit on my show and he was like, I'm not sure we really need this to protect against severe disease for the majority of people. And you're generally young and healthy. And I'm like, okay. But then I ended up getting it in like late, like in December, because I was going to see my elderly parents who are in their eighties and it was peak Omicron. And we didn't know much about Omicron at that time. And I said, you know, just to be good to them, I'm going to raise my neutralizing antibodies while I'm there. And ironically, when I went to visit them, you know, my dad actually got COVID from a nursing home that he was staying at. (laughs) So it was like, shit, but he did fine. But, but that's why I got that booster. Now the Omicron bivalent booster until I see data that that is actually helping severe disease prevention, there for me, there's no way. There's no way. And in fact, 
you know, my concern with that particular booster is they've split the dose with the old school strain and the new strain. So both are like half doses, as I talked about with Paul on my show. So in a way, you're just getting a crappy vaccine all around. Like I would rather have the old school booster because there's immune imprinting is just going to respond to that anyway. So my take is unless you're elderly, elderly, have a lot of other coexisting conditions, or you just like vaccines and want to go get vaccinated. I, I don't see any reason to get the uh, bivalent booster until I see better data. Helpful. You think about the flu shot. So for years, I've been an advocate of flu shot. And the reason is, is that even if it's not super effective in a given year, like they get the, the strain wrong, even a 30% reduction in influenza uh, severity or, or infection is, is, is worth it because influenza itself can kick your ass, even in terms of symptoms. So I get it every year and I'm a healthcare professional, so I'm kind of conditioned to do that. But I do think it's actually a very safe vaccination and it could relieve a lot of unpleasantness and probably save lives because the people who die of influenza, it's a little unpredictable sometimes. Young people, old people, and sometimes people in between. During H1N1, I saw a lot of sort of middle-aged people dying in the ICU that I would admit that be, because they would just get overwhelming um, acute respiratory distress from flu. So it can happen. So I'm an advocate for it, but I would never mandate it. Well, Zubin, I cannot thank you enough for this conversation. I feel like I could keep you forever, but I will, I will release you. I have one last question for you. What do you tell somebody entering medical school today? Or actually, what do you tell somebody who says, I want to apply to medical school? <laughs> I usually tell them, if there's anything else in the world that you would rather do, but you think is impractical, like I would rather do X, Go try to do that first. Oh my God, that's what they used to tell people when they said, I want to be an artist or I want to be a musician. <laughs> like, it, just, if there's anything exactly. else you could do. Anything else you could do. And it's the same with medicine. It's the same with medicine. Because you know, as an artist or a musician, you're in for a world of hurt. Uh, you're in for a lot of heartache and a lot of sleepless nights and all the thing. And it's the same with medicine. You know, it's, it may be a guaranteed, you know, route to the upper middle class, but you know, there are other ways to do that if that's really what you want. So you have to ask what you really want. And for me, you know, it's funny. <laughs> I kind of got what I wanted, but it took me a long time. So I realized I was always a kind of teacher and a, I like to entertain and I like to communicate, but I also love science. I love people and I like medicine. So I had to go through the crucible of medical school, do the practice for 10 years to get that conditioning enough that I could then talk about it in a way that it actually resonated not just with people who aren't trained in that, but people who are. And so that was the path that worked for me. But so almost if I had taken my own advice prior to going to medical school, I probably wouldn't have gone to medical school. I would have gone and tried to be a guitarist or something. So maybe I take all that advice back. I, I'll say this, you're going to do what you do. It's almost <laughs> this whole idea That's of free will is a little confusing. So Listen to all the advice. It's all going to condition you and you're going to do your thing and it's all going to pan out perfectly. Everything is perfectly managed at the level of the universe. So that's the final advice. Okay. Well, Dubanya, <laughs> thank you so much for this conversation. This has been illuminating and a uh, lot to think about. So uh, I'm really grateful to you for coming on. Thanks for your awesome questions. It's great to, to talk with you, Megan. That was my conversation with Dr. Zubin Damania. He is an internist and former hospitalist and is now a leader in a movement to build a new model of healthcare. He is also the host of the Z Dog MD show, 
which you can find at ZDogMD, that's dog with two G's, dot com. This is the Unspeakable Podcast. As I probably already told you, you can support the podcast at my Substack, which is meganbaum.substack.com. There's lots of stuff there, including writing that I am doing. Since I am a writer, I was, I will be again someday. I am now. I'll be back next week or very soon with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.